How do we join with others to achieve and experience more and get in flow as a unified team? This is the question we ask each episode in the Unified Team podcast. Here's your host, Rob McPhillips. I'm Matthew Ward. I'm from Canada. I'm retired for a number of years, and I'm doing this now. I'm Mohammed Mahmoud. I am an expert, if I may say, because I have a good experience in hospitality and SaaS business. So I'm now doing business consultancy, helping startups mostly to kick off the ground. And I'm also now been active on this platform for the past three and a half months, and I've met great people like yourself now, Matthew, Rob, and Johan, and we. I think we're collectively we are gradually growing and learning from each other on a daily basis. Seriously. Um, yeah, so the, my focus at the moment is, uh, is an organization called Stuck to Unstuck, and the focus is really on working with people in the workplace who are struggling or frustrated and want to move forward, necessarily getting the right support or the right guidance or training that they need, and on an individual basis, uh, identifying how do we help these guys move forward and gain the competencies they require to do what they want to do. I'll just explain a little bit of my thinking, my rationale of why I chose you all to be in the group and what I was thinking. Matthew and I had a wonderful conversation where he shaped my thinking on the difference between leadership and management. And I really wanted to get him and Mohammed together to clarify that idea of leadership management and how can we have a working framework that is useful. Mohammed and I, in our conversation, we touched on the limits of what is a leader and then where do those responsibilities then end with the work. There's lots of talk about the leader's responsibility. If the team is not responsive to that leader, then that can be the constraint. Johan works on the other side of leadership in helping people navigate their careers in being recognized and being able to communicate better in being able to be recognized by leadership and move in their career. So I thought he would have an interesting view and some contributions on the other side. A hazy idea, but I'm hoping through the conversation that we'll be able to clarify it. But basically the outline is where does the lead, leader or the manager's responsibility end and the team members begin so where's that delineation if i add as a starters i believe that uh, both leaders and managers role are to a certain extent interchangeable that's one secondly i believe that the, both these roles are actually responsibilities so for to me if i just zoom out from my personal angle i see this <clears throat> as not a title but individual responsibility of managing and leading and they are both the foundations I like to call the analogy of a skyscraper. Like it's both of them are required for the solid foundations. It's not either you are a manager or a leader, or you could be both could be a manager and a good leader or vice versa. So I have a very open view on it. I don't like to glorify the leadership title, which we see a lot in our lovely LinkedIn platform. And I believe that managers can also be leaders because who is the leader for me, who is actually leading from the front, who is setting some examples for others to follow, who could ignite passion and equally so can also manage people on an individual level. So what is that management looks like? It's the day-to-day -day stuff. I want a holiday. I need a break. I can't work on that particular schedule, etc. So that's the nitty gritty side of things, the mostly the administrative part. And that's how I see the manager or the management looks after that. And if I wear the hat of a leader now, and I want, uh, for example, Johan to stop uh, coming by car because I want him to be more eco-friendly and cycling to work, I should be doing that first, so setting that example, and then ask or request him to do so. So this is my kind of initial comment on both leaders and men. Sorry, Johanna, you were on my screen, so I just picked you. I'll tell you what, from where we started going to town, we see quite a number of cyclists because they've actually made it possible. It simulates somewhat uh, what in the Netherlands, I'd assume, with the dedicated biking paths. It's a lot of cyclists, but still, it's 20, where we are, 25 k's into town, 25 k's back. You know, so you really have to want to do it in order to get there because it can be a challenge. Touching on to what you're saying, through my whole career, I was fortunate or cursed to be either in senior management or executive positions until I got fed up of it. And I realized that where I really enjoyed what I did is working with high potential individuals who were just not able to live up to that potential you know, and helping them just find that spark. 
And that's what I had to change my profession into now and to really build something significant around it. But what I've always struggled with is this differentiation between leadership and management because they are management tasks. To what you referred to, it's part of managerial duties to ensure that people are doing what they're supposed to do and to grant leave and to provide support and so forth. And then there's leadership components that come to that, et cetera, the stuff that we're all familiar with. And from my experience, both being all across the hierarchy, I cannot recall being myself in a position or any of the people that either reported into me, those I reported into, or colleagues that I worked with, where you did not have a continuous combination of the two. You, were, you, you may have the designation of manager X, but in order to have success in that position, you also have to be what is defined as a leader and execute leadership competencies, because otherwise you really are just ticking boxes. I've never seen that to be just a requirement. So it's an interesting dilemma. I see so many different options around what these two different things should be and how they work together. And I'm very curious. It'd be fair to say I have a different view of it. Let's talk about management first. Let's start there. So all organizations need some form of management and uh, management provides uh, structure and it uh, provides um, areas of responsibility. It's a conduit for communication. And uh, managers typically are the people that oversee tasks and having tasks started, continued, and finished. Goals met, sales quotas filled, whatever the case may be. So those are, generally speaking, the job of managers. And managers can accomplish that in many different ways, depending on their their areas of responsibility and their personalities and their style and how they operate. And so to me, a lot of that style is confused with leadership. So it's for me, that the, the, the issue there that people have is with style. As for the organization as a whole, I believe it's driven by its culture. And manage, uh, one of a manager's responsibilities is to be a monitor of and a, a carrier of the flag for the culture. But they don't set the culture because culture should be a large, big, unifying idea. And you can't have five different departments with five different managers setting their own cultures. Their job is to carry the one flag for the unifying culture. And if you do it right, it's your culture that runs the company. It's it, and all the managers do is make sure that's happening. Where does the culture come from? The culture is set by, generally speaking, by that large, big vision, that big idea. And who sets the big idea? That's the leader's job. The leader provides the big idea. The leader provides the umbrella under which everybody works, we'll say. The leader provides the journey. The, des- the destination. The managers provide maintenance, support, and influence for that idea. And the people who work in the departments un- in management or under management under the different levels, and that would include sub-managers and whatever, they are the followers. They follow the idea. And those are the three ways I would describe it. And it's off- and, and it does often get confused But what people always leave out is this idea of the vision, the idea that I'm going to take all of us from here to there. And you can't have two people doing that. You can't have three visions or seven visions or 11 leaders all with their own visions. There's got to be one person or at least one small group. But generally, it's a person. It's a person who has an end. And the go-to example is Steve Jobs, right? He's the go-to example. He had the vision, he provided the culture, and he was an absolute dick, as anyone who knows the story knows. He was an unpleasant human being, but it didn't matter because he had managers who did all that stuff. He could sit above it and be the crap ass that he was, but his vision was so uh, spectacular that it pulled everyone along. He was the leader. His managers weren't. So that's the way I would explain it. If I can ask, maybe just to clarify from my perspective, what you're saying is so you've got defined responsibilities. So you've got a leader and he creates the vision and that has got a specific set of competencies around it. And then they've got the managers in the various different structures and organization and they execute on this vision on behalf and under the guidance of the leader. Is that, is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's the way I would say it. I, I guess execute would be a word, but they carry the flag. They yeah. carry the flag for the thing, and they all have to be dialed in. 
And they're the ones that transfer that energy to the people below them. You go to the weddings and they have all those that stack of the champagne cups and they pour the champagne on the top. That's how it's, to me, that's ideally, that's how it's supposed to work. All the champagne flows down. Does it work that way? Not very often. That's the challenge, right? To me, that is the ideal. That's the ideal in any event. Matt, if I can comment here. First of all, yes, I have the same idea of the vision when leader dictates that or shares the vision and inspires people because I'm a, probably the one of those who carries this flag of servant leadership a lot. So that's set aside for a second. What you've said is the manager. So it could be, let's say, in an org, you've got one leader. So we forget him for a second because he's laid down the vision and he's poured these five managers into that vision, right? Now, these managers now have to go ahead and expand that vision further down the chain. So isn't it that manager now becoming a leader for its own small sub-team, sharing that vision downward so people buy into that? So isn't he's now this person is now stepping into the role of being a leader, but not a manager now? Because manager is, okay, let's do this. One, two, three, four, five, we have to do it. Let's go. Let's do it. In ideal scenario, then he or she should be selling this vision so the people of this sub-team to buy in from them to go towards that common goal. My comment would be that depends on the structure of the organization. As a historical example, I uh, I submit uh, Napoleon, great leader, but many of his um, marshals were leaders in their own right. And they could be leaders in their own right because he carved his army into army corps And they were wholly independent and they carried his vision. But since they operated independent of the whole, most of the time, they developed their own leadership qualities. And history remembers uh, a guy like Marshall Ney as a leader in his own right as well. So I think it depends a lot on your structure. But if you have a more closed structure, which is more typical of the corporate structure, then it's like too many cooks spoil the broth. Too many leaders is problematic, I would say. And that's not to say that they don't pop up and develop because you can get leaders pop out of a situation, take control of a situation. They're the right person at the right time, at the right place. There's a situation. They recognize it. They seize it. They show people a way out of it. They are in that moment leaders, but they are not the leader. And that leadership doesn't stay with them. They're only the leader in that moment. Once the crisis passes or the whatever, and the organization continues its useful path, they they go back to being the very good managers that they were. And another issue, just while I'm on it, another issue is I, I have, and you mentioned it, the leadership is just a word being thrown around all over the place these days. And it it bothers me because it degrades Managers, it's as if managers aren't good enough. You got to be a leader. No, damn, you don't have to be a leader. You can be a crackerjack manager. You can be a very great manager. And when Rob and I spoke about this before, I used the example of the Henry Ford. Now, Henry Ford, there's an argument to be made that he was a leader, but Henry the Ford the second was not by any stretch of the man. No one would call Henry Ford the second a leader, and yet he was a crackerjack manager. He, he built the company mm. from when his father passed it to him. Now he did do the Edsel, but he was a very good manager. And you look across corporate America today and then a lot of other smaller orgs, private and, and, not, and, and public, there's all kinds of people whose names you don't know, tens and tens of thousands of them who are CEOs and they're absolutely fantastic at what they do. And if you're in certain industries like accounting, God help you if you're a leader in accounting or banking, because they're supposed to keep a low profile, right? That's the way the industry is. And yet the CEOs of a lot, the CEO of a large corporation, accounting corporation is damn good at what he or she does. They're the best in the business, but, but they're not leaders, right? They're just very good managers. And it's okay to be an exceptional manager. And if there's one problem in business today is there's a crisis in management. And the crisis is that we're not 
developing and haven't been for a while, a lot of good middle management. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And that's a subject for another day. But it drives me nuts when I see everybody wants to be a leader. Nobody wants to be a manager. When managers are so necessary, important, and in such short supply, it's way better to try to be a great manager than a great leader because the the world is your oyster. There just aren't enough great managers. Rant over. Thank you. Thank you for that, Matthew. I see what you're saying in terms of Steve Jobs, Elon Musk as well. It's another one that they had a very clear vision. They drove people that they left one person in charge of an area and they were accountable and responsible for it. They let, went, let, left them to do their own thing. So in that sense, they were leading their own team, leading their own project. But I think when you look at a lot of organizations, there may be 100, 150 years since the visionary's gone. So if you look at Ford, it's many years since Henry Ford's gone. So that kind of leader who stands for something, who leads with a vision, often they've gone. You then have managers managing the culture. And what you've got is people who often are focused on next quarter's earnings. It's about share price. I think that when there is a lack of leadership, what you then have is, as it filters down, you then have, because there's a lack of clear vision or purpose or defined goals and vision from the organization, the, there becomes a power vacuum that you create silos and you cre- create department heads who then have power struggles for their own personal visions. And I think that's where we then get a divided culture. I see the idea of the, the wedding shoots coming out when you've got strong leadership then the leader at the top is like the juice if you have a cordial there's a juice and as it filters down it's going to become diluted so when you have a leader that isn't as strong as steve jobs who isn't as clear is that where the culture then becomes a problem and you have division and silos so just like to chuck that in for discussion yeah the, the it does happen that the vision survives the visionary and, and, and a good vision will. But boy, that's a big question, Rob, because the, the fracturing of the vision or the, boy, it, it gets into so many issues here. One is the, the loss of the vision or the dilution of it. You also get into this idea of managers and management and just human beings being human beings and carving out their own fiefdoms and having their own personal relationship issues and that all stuff happens. And then there's another issue that has to do with in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, this slavery to the quarterly report and the share price kind of makes a vision pointless because why have one? All you're trying to do is drive a share price, right? Man, that's a big subject. That's a big subject. It is indeed a, a very big subject because, Rob, you just ignited a debate here on this. <laughs> here, I fully resonate what Matthew is saying. And, and Rob, to, to, to your point, I can give you a small example how this vision could be converted into toxicity because there's a vacuum created, some poor decisions. You've got based in like different regions. So let's say, for example, perspective for argument's sake, a UK-based team, a Finn-based team, a US-based team, a Canada-based team. Everyone then creates their own vision, own kind of direction. And what happens is that because the leader was either a poor leader or a weak leader or in corporate terms was voted out by the board and there was a vacuum. What happened afterwards that company just lost its share price and it just literally collapsed due to one bad decision made right at the top from where the supposedly the vision should have originated. And it creates obviously toxicity, which is another big topic to, to, to discuss. But that's how I see it. So again, going back to this point, like everything starts from the very top. This is what I believe that anything that happens at the top has a massive impact going down the chain. And as we say that managers are either great managers or poor managers, likewise, leaders are also to be a bad leader. But to me, then I take an extra step here and I have been saying this quite out loud on LinkedIn as well, on various posts as well. Whenever there's a talk about bad leadership, I don't class that person to be a leader then. Because if the leader is making these bad decisions, it means that he or she is not even sold into their own vision. I'm not saying they're flawless, but that's how I take it, that you cannot be a bad leader. You are either a leader 
or you are not. Just to clarify, as in, if you're a bad leader, no one follows. Therefore, you're not a leader. Is that really what you're saying? Exactly, because you lose respect. That's how Mm -hmm. I see it. Because obviously, I have some experiences and some people in my experience like lost their moral authority in the business because you don't follow a bad example. Well, yeah, a, a leader assumes followers. Lead is the root of leader. What are you leading? Are you leading sheep, toasters, or people? And if you don't have people following you, you are no leader, right? You're just, in uh, Muhammad's case, you're just a really bad manager, right? Other ways for that kind of structure to manifest. We all hope that it's the romantic notion of somebody with a grand vision and others who are inspired and enthusiastic about that vision and they follow voluntarily and you know because they think they can contribute. But then the reality in business is also there could be somebody at the top to find them as you will, who simply through influence and fear rule the roost and people still do what they're supposed to do and you get the result this is a very interesting conversation and i i find myself thinking something that i've been thinking for for a while and that is it could be sometimes caught up too much in contextual definitions what i mean by that is i really like what matthew says in terms of uh, is a person who takes the responsibility or the ownership to create the vision and then you can get competing visions others in the environment who says no i don't agree and they influence the board they influence others and they try to get their agenda pushed. That does not diminish leadership. That just means there's a couple of guys who's fighting for the same position and is trying to, to take that lead point. So the way I, I, I work with guys is to try and get them out of the thinking, just practical context, if you will, between the definition of a leader and the competencies required to act as a leader. So organizationally, it is defined that there is a head working in an organization where there were two heads, two CEOs, and they worked well together. But my understanding is typically that's not something that works because the chairman is already a pain in the butt and then the CEO needs to manage the board and the executives and everybody else. So one CEO, take the lead, it's your job, get the job done, see where you want to take us. But just on the point of vision, vision can endure, but vision can also change. If you take Apple as an example, I don't think for a moment Tim Cook has changed the broad vision of Apple, but the way he approaches that vision has been markedly different than what Steve Jobs has been doing. It. You know, Jobs has all been innovation, kicking the bucket down the way, and Tim has been more about getting it sustainably done, making sure that it can endure over a long period of time. If you have different people in the organization, to your example earlier, you have different small teams, but at some point within a team, a job needs to get done. And the person who takes responsibility for that team, that component of the broad organizational structure, They've got a contribution that they need to deliver. And in some, at some point during the work that they do, they need to display leadership competencies. And at other points in the job they do, they need to display manager competencies. The problem arises. You can't then go to your checklist and say, okay, what do I do? Unless you're an airline pilot and they have to do that. But for the most part, for the work that we do, you don't have a checklist you can go and check. You have to chat to the team. Guys, we've got a problem. We've got to accomplish this. We're not going to get there from here. How do we think about this? That displays leadership competencies. And then once that is evaluated, some solutions, and then the management competencies come back, right, now do we need to execute? What do we need to do? What do we need to plan? Uh, what resources do we require? Who is, et cetera, et cetera. And you guys are all familiar with both sides of that coin. I'm of the opinion, to summarize this, that there is definitely a case within a broad organizational structure to define a leader and what they need to do. And everybody else who follows that leader willingly or through a bit of encouragement. But within everybody's job that they do, there is a requirement to at some stage exhibit leadership and also management competencies. I don't think that only goes for managers. You know, even the guys that are working in the teams, they also need to manage themselves, manage the work they do, manage the quality that they deliver, manage how they interact and engage with those who are around them and with those that they report to regardless of how we define that. So it's the application of the competency, I think, within the broader structure, as long as it complements the vision and not is and not opposes. That, that's where I think that's where the challenge really comes in. Some valid points, I agree. Because for, for, for instance, there was a situation where one of my staff members, she stood up and said, can I lead this team? Now, it didn't mean to see, can I manage this team? It was a different because there was some task needed to be done or a project needed to be handled. And she wanted to just mm-hmm. lead that project, lead the team. But she also already had a manager on t- sitting on top of her. So this is where I still stand 
on my point of view is that it's a mixture of both even today it was a bit controversial but i posted about like introverts can leaders could be great managers i i still believe as you said it's more like how you implement and execute your your skills or abilities to handle that kind of scenario which is building up another small example i can give is that in one of my previous ventures i stepped out from the, the operations and then when i had to get back into it i walked into one of my units in that particular unit i had about 117 people employed on my payroll and on the shift i found them 43 of them and i fired 39 of them on the spot i wasn't the manager own class myself as leader because i was the md of the business but i had to walk in and execute that and then what i did was i took on this responsibility so i went into the production line myself because i knew somebody has to step up by doing this obviously there was <clears throat> some other guys were called in to to work and i led this then unit for at least 3 and 1/2 weeks so leading from the front then training these people so i was juggling the roles being a manager because i was doing scheduling i was ensuring that the deliveries are on time and <clears throat> whatever agreements we have we are adhering to those clauses and equally i was trying to lead the team out of that kind of adversity if you like because obviously they yeah. so this is where i started to believe in that okay i can swap roles i can be a leader at one point i could be handling the tough board who is hungry for my neck and i can also sit with my people i can connect with them on individual level and to me another important factor in a leadership capacity or a manager capacity just where like it's a combination is that even if i'm sitting so let's say i'm an md and i've got 400 odd people on my payroll the best thing one what i i learned was that i could recognize each and every single team member regardless of which department they are i could remember their first name at least okay i'm very poor in remembering the last names but at least i knew okay this is rob this is jessica this is krishi so this made me more connected with them i wasn't their manager and maybe i wasn't their leader either because they hardly see, saw me on a day to day basis so this is what i expect from leaders that if you want to sell the vision don't sell in the boardroom sell to the public downwards and on one of my last uh, consultancy venture this is where i walked out of the contract because i believe that the company's culture is not being how i look at it is is like an iceberg right since some things are visible some things are invisible and i spent way too much of time on the ground connecting with people and understanding actually what's going on and and what could be done because we had to implement some operational efficiencies and i couldn't do it unless i understood the root cause so i found that and i presented to the guys who hired me and i discussed with them and i realized that they are just talking about numbers because for them everything is a number game but this is not how i see leadership leadership is that when you stand up for your people you take the hate even if it means sacrificing your own job so that's to me a leadership i rest my case yeah but that can also be a great manager and i would expect in my company i expected my managers to do just that i expected them to do that i expected them to defend their turf and defend their people and to be that wall between them and all the adversity above i i expected them to do that but i didn't consider them all leaders because they did that even though eventually one or two turned out to be good leaders in their own right but that these are these are part uh, things that ma- all managers should have in them do you think yeah they should have it but i think if we now let's zoom back into if i may class this as more sort of a ground reality here right in practical terms people are afraid to lose their jobs people are afraid of many other things people are very much afraid to put their neck on the line and where you expect these managers to take the hate defend their turf as you mentioned but that can be done as a leader too so you are also depending on protecting your own people right so it's not about who is managing is also actually who is giving them the protection or the psychological safety the culture element comes in who is more better connected with the people on the ground i don't have to be classed as a manager or a leader i could be a team member who is probably understand people's emotions i can talk to my team members and i can maybe also encourage them to do better or do certain things in a different way so then which role i am in i'm not the manager i'm not the leader but i have a huge influence 
on my team. I'll tell you what, if I can quickly just chime in here. As interesting as, as the discussion is, as valuable as it will be to ensure that one runs this through to a proper theoretical end, the consequence, and this touches to something that Matthew raised earlier, is that it's one of the elements, at least in my mind, that is causing a challenge for junior and middle, and I'd suggest even senior managers these days. If you look at the literature out there the last 10 years, and I'm talking books written to LinkedIn posting, anything in between, blogs, videos, there are so many different opinions about how should a leader be defined, how should management be, et cetera, et cetera. And what it causes practically is on the ground, and I say this because it's an N of two, I've worked with two guys in middle management positions recently, but I also recall my managers that used reporting to me in various different organizations, they come here and say, okay, so what do I need to do now? Where should I focus? So in a reporting structure, that's different because we know exactly what we need to do. But our two guys come to me and say, I need help. I'm confused. I don't know whether I should spend more time on training and educating people as leaders should do and creating the vision for them and helping them through their career aspiration. Or should I spend more time on making sure the team accomplishes the goals that we have to do in order to further the organization's objective. And I, my question then is, well, why are you confused? What are you getting paid for? And there's two things that I think are critically. I think the one is that I don't think managers as a whole, and I'm talking management as a position, not management as a competency. Management as a position, I don't think there's enough support for those guys because of learning really how to be skillful at what they do and apply a host of different skills in order to move their team and organization forward. And secondly, this is not a little bit of my side, but I also don't think there's enough support for those in the teams to be able to equip themselves and get to the right level of competence so they can effectively support their manager and actually do what they need to do. The one guy I spoke with, I said, okay, show me what your diary looks like for a week. And I kid you not, four hours out of every day, four hours out of an eight-hour day, and that excludes lunch and such, he spent in one-on-one engagement with various different members of the team. So I said, he said, what do you actually talk about here? And it came to about 20% of the time they actually spoke about the work they were doing. The other 80% was all about what are you working on? What are your personal goals? Because that is what they, what he was in for. From, I'm sure, a well-intentioned person, that that's how you need to engage, because that's how you built that unity, that's how you built that, that team, etc. And that's all true. The problem is that the real focus. And I'm not for a moment suggesting that they should neglect it. I just want to be clear on that. But where's the balance point? And how do we make sure that the managers who are out there, millions and millions of them, who are trying to do a damn good job, that they are sure they can focus on the right things and they've got the right support and the right structures in order to achieve the results that they want to and need to achieve. I think, Matthew, I'm tying into the point you raised earlier, but I also have seen that managers as a whole, they want to but they're struggling. And I'm not sure that they have enough support to really effectively move forward. I think that's why there is this crisis in middle and, and you added junior and it has seeped upwards as well. It used to be if you could make it through middle management, it was like a, a, a test of strength. You could survive middle management, then you were going to be okay in upper management. But that's less and less true because middle management has been a mess for decades. And it's been a mess for decades, I think. And I'm just uh, riffing on some of your thoughts here. And I think it's because of all the confusion that has been injected into that middle management role now. And your example of your friend or coworker you were talking about, he had to ask, what the hell am I supposed to do? I've got 40 hours worth of stuff everyone's asking me to do in a day. I'm spending four hours a day on pep talks because someone told me there's only so many hours in a day and what's my role? And and am I supposed to be that empathetic, educational friend or am I supposed to be that hard driving, get get the work done? Am I supposed to be, what am I supposed to do here? If you look through the enough LinkedIn posts, there's, my God, there's 500 things that a middle manager is supposed to do in a day touchy-feely stuff and hard-ass stuff and don't do this and do that and do that. Is it a wonder why middle management is such a mess, right? Because we've turned it into, we've held the business. Folks, we're working for profit-based companies. You got to turn a profit, man. And we've just turned them into babysitting clinics in a lot (laughs) of cases. Like we got to turn a profit here, people. That's why we're here. If we don't turn a profit, we're all out. And then you got to go work for the bad guy down the street. So let's all get along. Let's work together. Let's let's not be idiots about it. Mm. But boy, you just listening to you talk there, I, I've never been in the corporate world, but I'll bet you that's just horrible. 
horrible mm. in, in a large corporate setting. Man. That is indeed the kind of my experience, and it's a very limited experience. I don't suggest that I speak for everybody in all cultures and all periods of the world. But I've seen a limited number of people who've actually been able to, and that's it's through good mentorship, actually. I've never seen somebody really just get to it by themselves. Through good mentorship, being able to identify, okay, this is how we need to move forward. And then they thrive, and then they go. But from colleagues and, and guys that I've just connected with, and some questions from a research perspective, or in bigger companies, I'm talking 20, 30,000 employees across the world, they've got these defined structures, and I'm sure, again, intention, HR and support, and et cetera. And, and for the most part, they are following the advice of well-respected people out there who promote technologies, new ways of thinking, ways to really just not thrive even, but survive in, in this modern business world, as ChatGPT calls it every day. And and it's challenging. And I think, so I want to ask Rob a question. I'm just thinking about it now. But Rob, your specialization is relationships, right? And how much have you seen that the potentially a, a reduction in the capability of forming effective relationships, both in the corporate environment as well as then, you know, personally outside, how much has that affected people's capability for the stuff we'll be talking about? Just to go back a moment, between the lines of, so I'm listening and I'm not an expert on leadership, but I understand people and I understand relationships. And from that context, I look at leadership. So I'm look intellectual and how it uh, impacts people. And what I see is the lines are blurred because I think what we're doing in leadership, how we're distinguishing leadership is in taking people from confusion to clarity. And when you talk about the big organizations, there's a lot of confusion because there is a lack of clear vision and because there's too many people that I think the amount of people that we're dealing with is something that challenges our biological capabilities. When you look at Dunbar, people have a, a limit of 150 people that they can maintain any kind of relationship, 1,500 that they're aware of. And when you're talking about 20, 30,000 pound, 30,000 people, organizations, it's something we're biologically incapable of. So I think when you look, when you bring that back down to relationships, if you go back to <coughs> the industrial revolution, it separated the way that you earn your money from your home life. So there's that separation, which is inherently stressful because we're working and we're living in cities which we're not designed for. We, we haven't evolved that capability, so it's inherently stressful. You go into London and nobody looks at each other on the train because it's overwhelming. We know from environmental psychology that the more crowded you, you are, the more stressed people are, the more aggression that people have, the more hostility that people have. So all of this is impacting relationships. It comes at a time when our relationship models haven't changed you can tell me if i'm answering your question right but what i see is we've we don't have a relationship model and whether you're managing or whether you're leading you are reliant on relationships the culture is yeah it's set by the vision but ultimately it's the purity of it is the levels of interactions between people and when people don't know so when you create these organizations that create these silos and there's power vacuums and there's all this this kind of toxicity that comes which i think is inherent in a bigger organization mm. is then you have you've created the dynamics where relationships lack trust they lack safety People are stressed. Everyone's out for themselves. So if you look at what comes to mind is the alpha myth, like the whole alpha male role model, which uh, I think a lot of old leadership came from. If you're not a good leader, it's because you're not an alpha male. And actually the whole alpha male study, I'm not sure if you're aware, but it was they took wolves in captivity and the the author of the, the book, he wrote it in the Senate, someone prominent in the White House pushed that myth, which popularized it and everyone got involved in yeah you've got to be an alpha male and the authors spent 20 years trying to retract that saying it's not right the research was flawed because wolves live in family units the pack is the family unit they don't fight when one is old enough they'll leave the pack and make their own pack and what they've done is they put all these strange wolves together in captivity so naturally there was no bond they all were all fighting for dominance power creates access to resources so in the same way that captivity creates unnatural behavior our organizations create unnatural behavior and so we're asking managers or leaders to 
manage cultures to create cultures that aren't toxic, to create, get people to follow our agendas, to pursue a purpose and a goal. And yet managers don't, they don't have a working knowledge of relationships. And this is what I'm trying to do is put like standard operating procedures so that people know what is a good relationship. How do you create what drives a relationship? How do you deal with conflict? But there is very little information on that out there. And so we're asking leaders as well as being technical experts to be people experts. And that's a lot to to cover. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that answers exactly your question, but there's some more to think about. The concept that I sometimes think about is that you know, fundamentally, if you think about it, the modern workplace, whether you've got a team of five people or whether there's 20,000 people in the environment, it doesn't really differ conceptually that much from the villages you know, that humans lived in 10,000 years ago when they started farming, when they started grouping together. They're still some sort of a hierarchy. There's still somebody who takes accountability to to distribute resources, to ensure that people are safe, health, security, negotiate with neighboring villages, etc. And that construct still exists. That's the business environment. And if people got it right, um, I don't know, but people got it right in terms of relationships and how they interact, engage, promote and, and work with each other over a period of a couple of millennia, what has caused us to lose that, if I could suggest that, capability where we are now? I think that what Richard Branson and Steve Jobs and a lot of leaders have intuitively known is they've kept units small. And so they've kept them. So they are tribes. And But the human construct of how we operate is based on tribes. So we tend to be tribal. And this is why it's become quite natural, because the silos of today are like the village tribes where there was a tension between them before yeah so while they're like that but i think what can happen is a lot of big organizations trying to get too many people together without considering those human constraints i wanted to just ask based on what rob is saying i see from the information that i a little bit of reading on your profile but you indicated you had 72 locations across the country for the company that you bought or something like that that must have been quite a challenging environment to ensure that you can manage and lead that the way that you wanted to which of these principles worked and which did you find within your environment to, to not be so successful. That's pretty much the way I outlined it on the top. We had 72 stores and they were spread out 2,500 kilometers between furthest. And they were in three national cultures and two different languages. And so the challenges were enormous and they had to be solved. And the way, I, the way we solved it was through this idea of having a unified culture and then having the middle managers be the shepherds of the culture, and then the individual store managers be the executors of the culture. And we just depended a lot on the culture doing the work. And if we put the culture in right, then people would always know what they were supposed to do, when they were supposed to do it, how they were supposed to do it. And the general idea would be there, and it would just uh, managers would just have to do the details, make the schedule and blah, 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 blah. And they would more become conduits of communication than drivers of things because it, it was the culture. And that was very hard to do. And we weren't always successful, but that was the goal. And we gave the each store as much autonomy as we could. We used to think of ourselves as a Navy privateers where we were all, we were all going in the same direction, but everybody yeah. could, was getting there on their own boat. And, and like I said, that worked for us. It helped us build. When you're trying to, when you're building a new location and you have to install a new culture from scratch, that's a very hard thing to do. And we did that in various different ways, but when it worked great, and then once we went to a new city, say, and we, then we'd spider out in a city, we'd have a location in Quebec City, say, and if we could get that one up and running properly, then you just clone people off of it who, who have bought in. And then eventually you have, what do we have? Uh, five or six stores in the, that area. And then that was enough to clone up a manager, a, an area supervisor who came up, who already was car carrying the flag. And, 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 and that's the kind of way we did it. We, we were very deliberate about how we expanded. We, we established a beachhead 
expanded out. And we did that because of the culture. We were very culture-driven. We let the culture do all the work for us once we got it established. Much harder than it sounds. Sorry, one follow-up question, if you don't mind. Then it's, it's, also, it's really just because the word culture is sometimes one that even has more different definitions than leadership and management. For your organization, the culture, how would you have defined what is included? How would you define the culture from a, it's called an operating system perspective, if you will? The definition I use for culture is the shared ideas and experiences, ideas and experiences of a people in a group. That, that, that is the culture. They're shared ideas and experiences. And if you do nothing, if you do nothing, and I know this from opening uh, new stores, if you do nothing, there's a culture. Mm. Any group, five people waiting at a bus stop have a culture. It's the waiting at a bus stop culture. And if you think about it, you've waited at a bus stop. You know what to do and what not to do. Right? Mm-hmm. You know how to behave in the waiting for the bus. Everybody mm-hmm. does. That's the culture talking to you. And there's always a culture, and all you're trying to do is influence and shape it. You can't create it. It's already there. You're trying to influence it and shape it. And so that's what we tried to do was influence it and shape it. How do you do that? You do that through your management, up by example, and you do that by symbols. You do it by routines. You do it by tradition. You do it a multitude of different ways. And if you get it right, it it looks after itself. It's just like that bus stop. You don't have to keep telling people over and over how to wait for a bus. Everybody just intuitively knows. And if you can get that, get there, then the culture runs the store, right? The people themselves are their own referees, right? They know what to do and what not to do. That's the way we approached it. As I say, it was very hard. It took a lot of work, took a long time to develop, and we weren't always successful because as Rob will knows full well, people are complex. Humans are complex. Relationships are complex. And he's made some really good points, which I jotted down here about the institutions and the shape of institutions and how humans struggle with them and whatever. And as he was outlining those things, I was thinking back to some of my experiences and that, yeah, damn, that's true. That's very true. People do struggle with new organizations and shapes, artificially shaped communities and things. And and I saw that every day. So it's a very hard thing to do, but it's very worth it when you can do it. I I like to look at a natural analogy. Um, For culture, we have a natural analogy of gut bacteria. And so there's a constant battle between negative bacteria and positive bacteria and which outweighs. And so there's, and also if you look at, I love to read stuff from anthropologists and they look at a culture and there's a logic to every culture. So it's one theory is that Egypt was the biggest, earliest civilization because of the Nile. And so there's a reason. And if we look at when you mentioned queuing, it is wherever English Western cultures, wherever there there is a, we just naturally form queues. But I know that there's other Mm. cultures where they don't queue. And it's where, like, we go to another culture and they're, like, not queuing. They go, excuse me, <laughs> can you just get in line? I was here first. Yeah. There's a logic. And and I think when you, what you've done is be very deliberate and you had a perspective and a way of this is what works. And I think that part of that is part of the leader's job is to strongly formulate a pers- perspective so that culture then guides the people who come later. Because um, what's critically important is the leader starts, but going back to a point made earlier, if no one follows, the leader doesn't create a culture. And it's the second and the third and the fourth, which I think is what you were talking about in the way that you built up your culture, Matthew. So there's a lot involved in that culture, and it's a constant battle to keep the culture positive. Can I just throw in a comment and a follow-up question here then? Because we are on the topic of culture is a culture based on human connections there has to be a group right be it on a bus stop be it in a office space how do you guys see culture developing in this new work from home and hybrid environment where majority of the businesses now are entirely remote i personally am involved in some startups or some businesses they don't have any physical one location because they're all scattered across the globe so how do you see culture forming in that uh, particular environment? Myself, I'm withholding judgment because it's very early in the game and it's going to take a while for this to wash out. But my hunch is, and I'm, I'm, I'd am i be curious to know how 
Rob thinks about this. My hunch is that it's going to be very damaging to the ability for human beings to form the kinds of relationships, the shared experiences and ideas that cultures really require to be strong and good. And like I said, it's going to be a while before we can know whether this sort of thing is true or not. It's very early in the game. But my, I suspect, and I'm really curious to know what Rob thinks about this, but I suspect that remote work is very alien to the human experience. And it's, and it's going to be challenging for the traditional ways we build and form relationships, the types of relationships we have, and the kinds of cultures that come out of those shared relationships. M- my personal short answer is, I don't know. But those are the kinds of things I'm watching. Say you, Rob. So I think there's a direct analogy. Analogy is relationships and dating. So we live in a time where there are more single people saying that they can't find anyone when we have access to more single people than ever before. It's never been easier to meet another partner. And yet what's happened is dating apps have changed everything. And people, so then... People always find a reason for their anxiety and fear. And they say, you can't have relationships now because all people want is sex and they can just get that on an app. And nobody wants a relationship anymore. Nobody wants to put in the effort. And I remember Helen Fisher being asked by this, and she's an anthropologist and a new biologist, I think. And she said, no, actually, relationships are something that people need. People have free drives. They have a sex drive to get out there and meet people. They have a romantic drive to focus on one. And then they have a deep companionate drive that they want someone to be with, someone to share their life with. Those drives don't change. But what changes is the way that they get fulfilled. And so I think you see a lot of toxicity in dating because that what happens is we don't talk directly. The communication, and this is something that we talked about, Johan, in in our talk, is Mm. you talked about how there's a separation in culture of communicating less directly. What happens in dating is there is much more ghosting there is much more kinds of behavior that are demeaning to people, that we treat people as commodities rather than people. And so what I can see is people will want to work. And I think I see the Industrial Revolution, and we've talked about this, Matthew, the Industrial Revolution changed the way people were. It created this artificial world. Now I think we're in a second revolution where we're living a digital life. And that digital life means that we now have to recreate what were real in-person relationships. We need to create them digitally. So none of us have uh, have ever met in person, but yet we're able to, to relate. And so it's a different mm. type of connection. So my guess is that you're going to have a lot more toxicity in corporations because it's going to be easier. Uh, and this is what you said, Johan, so you, you may have some insight on this, is it's going to be easier to ghost people. It's going to be a- easier to avoid conflict. It's going to be easier to hide resentments. And there's going to be a lot more silent conflict and resistance. But overall, I think somehow we'll work it out because I think in talk to a couple of people about like Sandy yesterday, and there's another one coming up with, with Valdemar, is in talking about Gen Z, this is the generation that have grown up in social media. They communicate through social media. So I think eventually will it will become natural, but I think there's a good few decades where we're going to have to work it out. And I think that's where we're going to have a refined sense of emotional intelligence and much better communication. I think, Johan, you might have some insights as well. It's a fascinating subject. And there's a gentleman called, I'm going to absolutely butcher his name, and I apologize, Gleb Tepseski. New York Times calls him the office whisperer. And his focus has been on helping large organizations mitigate risk and impact relating to remote and hybrid remote work environments. And he's, he's had some very interesting insights about the structure. One of the things that, I, that I've read, and it's also been thought that stuck in my mind, is context matters. So when we talk potentially, and, and, and I'm just sharing an opinion, this is not based on any kind of own research or direct experience, but I would suggest that if we're talking about intimate relations, I'm not talking about sex and life, but me and my wife, or a person with whom you are uh, connected on a romantic level, 
that requires a very specific level of engagement and a long-term, I suggest there's a reason for it because you require that physical presence and that contact. Where in a work environment, if it's a long-term, there's people still who work 20, 25 years for a corporation. If they don't meet any of their colleagues directly, you, you never build that that close understanding and that cl- close engagement that you probably will if it's uh, that we used to do when we had to be in an office you know, every day. And, and, and go back home. There's a, there's a different level of camaraderie, there's a different level of integration that happens there. Um, the thing that, that I've been worrying about, though, is I think what many guys are worried about is not necessarily, again, this is just me trying to connect the dots, it's not necessarily the capability of people to work remotely when it's needed and their ability to perform the studies that have been done seem to indicate that when people are working remotely they seem to be more productive they seem to be more engaged they seem to have more joy and find more meaning now again the stuff is it's people providing feedback and there's all kinds of biases that one needs to take into account and you need to normalize the data and find some way to make it credible in in an objective manner. But overall, it seems to be the trends that come out. Now, if you do that in the work environment, and you can do that for people, and you're worried about how individuals are going to perform, then I suggest the real challenge here is that organizations are worried, comes back to a point we discussed earlier, that it's the people who manage those remote teams who might lack the capability. And Matthew, this is where you helped me finalize the puzzle in my mind. Help to effectively build a culture within that team and for that organization that still works. And that's where I, where I suspect the big challenge might be. Because for the definition that we've put together on it earlier, that really just in everything. So here's the hypothesis. If you have the right culture within that team, so their ideas and experiences are shared and they execute and think intuitively in the same way, then it should lead that the execution, the way that they deliver, should be sufficient and be able to take things forward. That culture needs to be managed by the person who manages that team and environment. And if that person has the right capabilities to do so, then potentially the, the concern around will people perform, can we be effective, is removed. So I think the challenge that they're trying to answer is we don't know what culture is going to exist. We are unable to manage it. We don't know if the people whom we trust to manage it actually have the capability. And what they don't say is we don't know how to help them. You know, the other thing is, if we look at what's happening in the world right now, most big companies and even the smaller companies, you know, uh, even the ones like in Cape Town, they're all bringing people back. You know, if I look at what traffic looks like at 7 o'clock in the morning, it looks like pre-COVID. There's no differentiation. Everybody's back in the office. Here and there, there are remote workers. Rem- fully remote work, I read this the other day from an HR study, fully remote work is actually disappearing. Not completely disappearing, but it's reducing rapidly because it's not necessary anymore. Companies don't believe they have to subscribe to it. Will it become the paradigm somewhere in the future? I don't think there's any argument against that. I think undoubtedly, but it probably won't happen in the next two years, maybe not even the next five years. Until, Rob, and I think you raise a good point there, the guys who are currently your teens and early 20s, once they start moving into those higher management executive positions and big corporations, and they bring everybody else who's been 20 years, they haven't been born yet even, but it's that generation and culture that they've been brought up with that may change the dynamic for the struggles that we, and I consider myself an all-timer here, we used to go to the office, clocking in at eight, clocking out at five. To me, it's I still feel sometimes that I'm not getting in a full day, despite the fact that I clocked 12 to 14 hour days working from my office, I'm not in the office. So there's that, I'm still getting used to it five years later. So I think we need to adapt at some point. Yeah, it's interesting. And I just want to share something because working from home or uh, remote working, I'm not passing any judgment on, on this. I have my opinion, but I still won't pass the judgment here. In one of my last ventures, so I had a, a set of people who were, and this is, by the way, guys, pre-COVID, right? So there were situations before as well when we had people you know, in different regions. I had a team of about 11 uh, in Sofia, in Bulgaria. I've got uh, four people who were based in, out of England and uh, about seven were based out of uh, Bratislava. And everyone had their own tasks, things are very smooth, etc. Until that point, I realized that there is a bit of uh, tension building up or the ghosting or people are just keeping inside them and Somehow I came to know about certain things or some gossips that move around, right? So Muhammad's team is doing that or Mark's team is doing that. And I talked to myself that I have to step in and, and sort this out. 
I won't be sitting with them and telling them what to do. I'm just going to bring them under one roof. And that's what I did. I arranged everyone to fly into England. I rented a big house there in close to Coventry. And I brought them everyone in. Everyone had their own room. Everyone had a space to work. I didn't say anything. I just left them at their own disposal. Right? Everyone was doing tasks and everything. And I told them that they're going to be staying here for a month. So they had time to prepare the meal together. They had time to share laundry, doing laundries together, etc. Believe me, in three weeks' time, when I walked, obviously I was going there on a daily basis, but I felt the warmth, the tolerance that has built up. Before, Johan and Muhammad didn't want to speak to each other. But now they are having a laugh. They're having a pint of beer sitting in the garden and, and, and having a fag with it. And, and this is how I, I, I managed to overcome. So the human connection still, for me on a personal level, is so crucial here. As I said, I'm not passing judgment. What uh, Matthew said, like, it's going to take some time to, to understand. But that's what practical application brought results and immediate within a month job done i think that could be the way of the moving forward because i look at a lot of entrepreneurs what they'll do is they'll be in programs and they'll be in like 90 day retreats and so they get together they get a clear vision and then they go away and then they go and i think that would probably work with the idea of projects and sprints and things that people have a like they come together they get the sense of purpose, the camaraderie, and then they go away and then they have a chance to come back at it. Before we go, I'm just interested, Mohammed, Matthew's shared his uh, model, but you also were responsible for building a sizable organization. In terms of culture, how did you manage it? Or did you have a different, in order to compare and contrast with Matthew's methodology? No, I would say it's very similar to what Matthew described. And that's exactly how I did. The very first unit obviously was a test and trial and learning for me as well, hiring people. And of course, we made a lot of mistakes. We have made some terrible hiring. I'm using the word terrible reflection, did some bad call outs. But two and a half years later, we were in a position to understand, okay, what works and what doesn't whom we should hire. And obviously, there was a vision, obviously, from day one. We wanted to capture London and then expand outwards. Shop 2, when we opened, it was a, a lot better. I won't say it was easier, as I'm sure Matthew would second that. But there were different challenges, not what we had experienced before. And I think, in my personal, when we reached the number 7, that's where we thought that, okay, you know what, we've mastered it. Now we are just replicating. So we had a few office managers who joined us as supervisors. Now they've moved up the rank and they understand the culture. They know the mission. They know what to drive and they become good training managers, etc. So in my experience in that org, at the point of exit, I knew there was a very solid foundation and it won't collapse because if I get out, things shouldn't crumble because that's not what the, the new investors have bought the business for. And I was very certain that it will work. And it, it worked. And again, we had to establish processes, procedures, the SOPs, as you like. And what I also felt useful and beneficial, documentation. Obviously, first two, three stories, you know what the documents are, what you need to do, why you need to add everything. But then we quickly realized that even back in the days when we used to have cash transactions, right? cards were marginal. Right? But every night, I used to drive around my shops and just collecting cash with the, with the hope that I don't get mugged on my way to the car. That's how it was. Then I realized, no, I can do better. So that's where the documentation comes. Okay, what's the cash handling procedure? How is it, was it like a check and balance on the safety deposits, safes which we put in, installed? Obviously, made a mistake, like we put a bit lighter one, they got stolen, we then had to put something different. And for instance, Rob and I had to countersign the amount which is being deposited in the safe. So it's all about learning as you grow. And then after a certain time, it was culturally acceptable, right, that I can be checked on my way out. So it became a kind of a norm. So people were not checked. And even one day I got uh, stopped by my own employee because she was just following the rule and said, no, sir, I need to check your bag. And I was like, okay, there you go. I felt very happy inside. Well done. The manager who was running that shop, that well done. So you've trained your people very well. So yeah, but Rob said completely in alignment with him it's it takes years of efforts to build a culture it takes one bad decision or a bad leader so to speak to destroy everything i'm conscious that we're coming up to time so i'm just thinking if we maybe take a minute each to share 
the idea of this is we've got some great brains here and just being able to share ideas and perspectives and differences hopefully helps us refine our thinking. I'll go first. For me, what it's done, it's really clarified in that the lines between leader and manager are quite blurry. And I think we need to manage where there's clarity and we need to lead where there is confusion. And that is really the role that we need to be able to, whichever role it is, whether manager leader, is the awareness of what is needed from the group. I zeroed in on Johan's when he was talking about, I mentioned it before, talking about this manager he was talking to that was just overwhelmed with direction or lack of it. And I got thinking about this idea of uh, management clutter and how much of it is piling up and how much uh, we're asking managers to do and how much they can physically or emotionally or psychologically do. And uh, I thought that was a tremendous comment. And uh, right at the end there, Muhammad got talking about how he ran his stores and be his uh, fellow store person. I would have probably talked another two hours with Muhammad on how you run stores because I love that stuff. But anyway, uh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it tremendously. What I'm taking away from this conversation is actually it reinforces the point of uh, a very weak middle management. I know the discrepancy between leaders and managers, but I think that's probably it's still in the kind of a very blurry, as as Rob, you described it. But it, it reinforces that we still need to do a lot more on the middle tier. I came across a post today as well about this. So there are people who are now reflecting this and I think this probably more needs to be done and this is our job to raise awareness and at least in our control what we have our own organization we should do uh, a better job my real single thought i'd take from this is just being able to finalize that earlier that sort of puzzle that i've been looking around with. so i i realize that managers are under a lot of pressure i remember i said it in our chat as well and a lot of pressure i don't think they have enough support and one of the things i've been trying to figure out is should one focus on a single item to start building that competency and that could then lead potentially to other things and there's two things that i did not count enough for and the one is the impact of a sensible culture within that team and then the thing that i really have not given enough thought is how important relationships between the people in a team is to actually stabilize and then enforce and evolve that culture into something that creates not drives managers but creates the results almost accidentally but that might be too much of a naive and romanticized hope uh, an ideal situation potentially where you have where the environment the relationships the way that people interact the way they get supported encouraged the leader that they get just infuses the right culture into what they do and, and how they operate which then drives the appropriate outcome for that team and that organization those two components i continuously misappreciate just underappreciate just how valuable they are thank you thank you everyone it's been fascinating again all three of you have wonderful content thought-provoking ideas and it's been a pleasure to be able to pick everyone's brains and to refine my thinking and understanding So thank you all for being a part of it and for sharing your wisdom so openly and so generously. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thanks, James. All the best. Bye, guys. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, and leave a review so we can spread more flow and unify teams. If you're on LinkedIn, please connect with me, Rob McPhillips.